This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score lecture series made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. The final event of the 2011 football season was held on November 26, 2011 and is introduced by Cindy Frederick, Associate Vice President for Engagement. But now it's my pleasure to introduce to you Siva Vidyanathan, who is a professor of media studies and law at the University of Virginia. Siva earned his PhD in American Studies from the University of Texas at Austin and has taught at Wesleyan University, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, Columbia University, and New York University. A former journalist, Siva is the author of two books and co-edited the collection Rewiring the Nation, The Place of Technology in American Studies. He has also written for periodicals including American Scholar, The Chronicle of Higher Education, the New York Times Magazine, Columbia Journalism Review, and The Nation. Please join me with a big Wahoo welcome to Siva. All right, thank you and uh, thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, this is uh, a really exciting day around here, so um, uh, I'm going to distract you a bit from football, which is uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, I'm Myself, I'm really excited about the game this afternoon. Uh, as you just heard, I'm an alumnus of the University of Texas, so I'm even getting over uh, the game from Thursday night still, um, which, was, uh, which was quite exciting for me. Now, um, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have a Twitter account? That's a pretty good number. Okay. How many of you are on Facebook? Significantly higher number, more than half. How many of you use Google? Right, of course. Right. Now you know why I chose to write a book about Google and not Facebook and Twitter. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm also the, the, uh, the new chair of the Department of Media Studies here at UVA. So this, I'm going to take a moment to introduce you to the department. Uh, the Department of Media Studies is four years old. Uh, we have uh, just begun our effort. Uh, to introduce to the curriculum here at UVA uh, a, a multidisciplinary and integrative approach to studying how media affects the world, uh, to, to study how we use and engage with media of all forms, film, print, digital, etc., uh, and how the exercise and extension of these media forms has altered our perceptions of the world, altered our perceptions of information, altered our ways of dealing with each other, uh, the number of fascinating and crucial questions uh, is infinite. Uh, if you look at what happened in North Africa, in Tunisia and Egypt in the spring of 2011, you can't help but ask really interesting questions, crucial questions, about the role not only of Facebook and Twitter, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about, but the role of Al Jazeera, which played um, an increasingly significant role uh, in how people throughout the Arab world learned about um, rebellion and resistance uh, within their own region in a way that was not possible 10 years ago. Uh, and so we are just now starting to figure out what exactly happened in terms of media usage uh, in, the, in the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt. And we're also trying to figure out why those revolutions went as they did, and as we know, even today, we're not even sure how Egypt's going to end up. Uh, things are, are once again very difficult and bloody uh, in Cairo. Um, but we are asking ourselves, um, why did, what role did media play in the failed uprisings in places like Bahrain and Syria? Uh, and, uh, and ultimately in a, uh, in a, a bloody and difficult um, event in Libya. Uh, what did it matter ultimately? Uh, I think there's a case to be made uh, that these tools were important, but there's also a case to be made that these tools were not decisive. Um, that's sort of how I fall in this, and I think we can have a much richer discussion about it later. But what I'm going to walk you through today are a set of myths and a set of what I call takeaways about the role of, uh, of uh, uh, these particular electronic media platforms um, that are inherently social. And you might not think of Google as being inherently social. Right? You might not think of Google as being in the same league as Facebook or Twitter, because we use Google for so much more. 
right? We use it to navigate the world. We use it to answer basic questions. We use it to settle bar bets, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's not exactly how we use Twitter or Facebook, although we, increasingly we are, right? I mean, one of the ways you can find knowledge uh, and, and, and distill knowledge from a specialized community is to start a Facebook group for that specialized community and ask, ask a question of the people in it. Uh, you can do the same thing with Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and, but, but you know, we do use Google in a, in a much broader way in our lives. And, so, and again, another reason it's, it's, it's a much uh, deeper, richer, more fascinating uh, subject. Uh, but so I'm going to introduce these myths, and I'm going to introduce the takeaways that, uh, that I've sort of distilled out of my observations. I'm, uh, what I'm presenting to you today is, in many ways, um, uh, a lot of summaries of uh, social science that's being done in a variety of different places around the country and around the world. Uh, one of my jobs as, uh, as uh, uh, interpreter of this social science is to try to make sense of it as a whole and, and try to uh, present it in as broad an audience as possible. Now, um, one of the things about social media is it hasn't been around very long, right? Uh, anyone know how old Facebook is? Yell it out. Yeah, five, well, five or six years as a major phenomenon in, in public life. Um, it's actually about eight years old in total. Uh, it started, of course, uh, uh, as a rather exclusive um, social networking service for a handful of universities, mostly private elite universities in the Northeast. Uh, and uh, after a number of years, uh, gaining in popularity and importance in that very small sliver of American life, uh, it expanded and ultimately exploded to the point where, anyone know how many Facebook users there are as of today? Yeah, about 700 million, which is amazing. Around the world, 700. Now, it doesn't mean 700 million people use Facebook every day or regularly um, or check it 40 or 50 times a day like I know you do. Um, but it does mean that that's how many registered users there are. Uh, but the amazing thing about Facebook is unlike a lot of media platforms that you may have read articles about over the years, like Second Life, uh, where a lot of people registered, tried it out once, and never went back, Facebook is, is what they call in the industry sticky. Uh, people um, get hooked on it uh, in a really interesting way. Uh, Cory Doctorow, who is a science fiction writer, um, who is also a scholar of digital media, uh, an activist, um, he, uh, he's uh, brought forth a concept. Uh, he, he thinks of Facebook uh, kind of like a Skinner box. If you remember the experiments that B.F. Skinner did in the 1960s uh, on, uh, on uh, the, the, the power of, um, of stimulus, right? Reinforcing stimulus and behavior. Uh, so he says that, that uh, one of the things we get out of Facebook is this, uh, th these little jolts of pleasure from the affirmation that somebody cared what we said or did, or thought, or even shared, right? Because a lot of what goes on Facebook is not our own thoughts. It's, hey, I like this video, and I'm going to put it up here, and someone will like it. And, and, and so what, what Cory Doctorow argues is that we, what happens when we're dealing with Facebook are, are lots of very small, little, like, uh, uh, pleasure uh, blips, right? Very limited. I mean, we're not, we don't get a rush of pleasure, right? We don't get, we don't get, Overwhelmed, we don't get stoned by what, by dealing with state, Facebook, but we do get we do get these uh, uh, these sort of little affirmations throughout the day that oh yeah, someone's paying attention to me, um, someone appreciates what I've said, uh, and and if no one has uh, has clicked on what you thought was a hilarious joke, you keep checking back to see if someone clicked on your hilarious joke, um, and if it didn't work, you try again with a different hilarious joke, right? Or maybe later in the day. Uh, and, and this is great for Facebook, right? Because it, it means that, of course, Facebook's tra tracking everything you're doing. It's, it's, it's constantly watching what you're clicking on, how many times you're going back to Facebook. Um, it's constantly following you from Facebook to other places on the open World Wide Web that's not in this gated community of Facebook. And, and being able to track that kind of behavior is so valuable to Facebook because that's how Facebook decides what ads to place on your site. And you may have noticed, if you're an active Facebook user, that Facebook hasn't quite figured out the ad thing completely. Right? Facebook often puts ads on your site that are actually kind of inappropriate, because all it's doing is reading keywords that show up on your site. 
and often inappropriately. So for instance, if there's a political candidate or leader who you really hate and you post a lot of things about that person, you're going to start getting ads for that person on your Facebook site. It happens all the time, right? Because Facebook can't tell the difference between you making fun of somebody and you saying nice things about somebody. Um, it's not at that level of, um, of, uh, uh, of, of comprehension and understanding yet. Now, one of the things about Facebook and Google and Twitter is they are data vacuums. They don't just exist there to give us these little pleasure pops. They don't just exist there to help us connect with friends from high school. That's actually the frosting on the cake. What they really do is gather a tremendous amount of data about our behavior for two reasons. One, in the short term, position those ads in hopes that those ads actually appeal to us and we do occasionally click on them because if we click on them and we buy something, then Facebook makes money. Or Google makes money and Google makes a lot of money through this. Google, as you may have noticed, actually does a really good job positioning ads next to your search terms. Right? But as you use Facebook more, Facebook learns more about you. As you use Google more, Google learns more about you. And the ads are supposed to become more appropriate, more relevant to your interests. At least that's how it's supposed to work. Google has been at it longer, has more data, has, I think, a better, higher level of algorithmic engineering going on, and therefore has a much more successful advertising system. Uh, and, and therefore makes a lot more money. Facebook didn't start making money until last year. Uh, and because it's not publicly traded, we don't actually know how much money it makes. Um, it, we know that its potential valuation, if it were publicly traded, is astronomical. Uh, and there have been attempts by Microsoft and some other companies to try to come up with a value in an attempt to, to purchase it. That was long ago. Now that number is so high, nobody's reasonably trying to purchase Facebook, but there's always this, uh, this um, uh, question of uh, just how much it's going to be worth when and if it does go public. So we don't really know much about how much money Facebook's making. Uh, we do know that it only started making money recently, that it loses a tremendous amount of money sheerly but by being so popular. I mean, one of the paradoxes of doing business on the web is the more popular you are, the more your costs are, are likely to wipe you out you know, because you have to keep the servers running all the time. Uh, and every time you exponentially increase your user base, the, uh, you're increasing the likelihood that everything is going to come crashing down on you. Right? So that's one of the reasons that, that it is so expensive to run a really popular site. An unpopular site, you might actually make money. Uh, it's really weird that way. It's really weird. That, so, and that's one of the reasons that they need advertising to work so efficiently. Right? Uh, they can't, many newspaper sites have found themselves running their advertising system the old-fashioned way you go out and you sell a position on a page, guessing about the number of page views. And that has not worked out well for newspapers and magazines in that straight up non-algorithmic sense because it's not very efficient. They end up asking companies to spend a lot of money for a return that ends up being very disappointing. Uh, and, and this is one of the hundred reasons that uh, newspapers and magazines are not as successful on the web as companies like Facebook and Google. But I said they, they are, these are data vacuum uh, machines, right? And, and, and I said that Facebook has not figured out how to understand when you're, the difference between when you're making fun of a political candidate and when you're saying nice things about a political candidate yet. And, and the, the goal here is for all of these companies, and one of the reasons that they hire the smartest mathematicians they can find, the smartest computer scientists they can find, the smartest linguists they can find is that the holy grail of this business is to understand the sentence, the human sentence. And the human sentence is one of the most complicated machines ever invented. We learn how to work them at a fairly young age, and so we take for granted how complicated these things are, how powerful these things are, and how diverse they are, right? Think about where a verb sits or where an adjective sits in an English sentence and compare that to a Spanish sentence or a French sentence. And those are really closely related languages, right? Then look at a Cyrillic language or look at Mandarin or look at a, a, lang a sort of hybrid language like Indonesian and then try to figure out how computers are going to try to read this stuff. 
It's mind-boggling. And there are groups of incredibly smart people trying to figure out these problems. Not just to work on language translation, but ultimately their goal, their dream, is to have series of, a series of very powerful computers, have enough data about how human beings use language that they can statistically predict what words mean in relation to each other. Computers will probably never actually understand the sentence, what is the capital of Idaho? Right? They won't necessarily understand it the way we understand it, like capital, right? You might have pictured the skyline of Boise, if you know what the skyline of Boise looks like. And there may, that may be an exaggeration, skyline, Boise. But um, nonetheless, you, know, we, you, know, you have a sense of what that means intuitively. It's, it's part of your operation as a social animal. To, to get a sense of what each of those words means and how they work in relation to each other, and that, it, that, that you've associated it with an actual place in the world, right? A place you might not have ever been to, but you associate that. That is a really remarkable and, uh, and, and complicated set of moves that your mind just made, you know, and, and beyond what any group of computers can do yet. And, and there's, there's a lot of sense in the, uh, in the high, at the highest levels of computer science that getting computers to think like that may actually be a waste of time. You know, in other words, the amount of computer power and learning ability may not be the most efficient use of how computers work. And computers and minds, as we are finding out very clearly, are not actually alike. Um, they don't actually do the same things. Uh, and so the idea is to simulate that. The way that a video game simulates real life action by doing a tremendous number of calculations very fast. Ideally, if Google and Facebook can figure out how to read our sentences statistically and associate those things, they might be able to discern those cues, right? Maybe they can figure out when we're being sarcastic. Probably not. That may be beyond them, right? Uh, they may not understand that I made a, uh, a, a joke about Boise, and I hope I didn't insult any Idahoans uh, in the audience. Um, all right, so here's, here, here are a few myths uh, about this environment. First, that young people are tech savvy. And, and you know, you hear cliches about this all the time. Uh, you, you may actually share this idea because at some point you handed an iPhone to a three-year-old, your grandchild, your niece, your child, and the, and the child said, oh, wow, you know, slid it open, page through, found the email app, somehow emailed your boss a bunch of squiggly marks. Um, and and you, you go, oh my goodness, either my child is brilliant or all children are intuitively able to relate to these machines and therefore there's something new and special going on here. And you may look out over my classroom if you were to come into my class. I teach a, a, a survey class for 300 students called Introduction to Digital Media. It's mostly second year students. Uh, and if you walked into my class and you stood up there in the front with me, you would see hundreds of attentive students tapping away at their laptop screens. And if you stood in the back of the room, you may notice that a significant portion of them are open to Facebook. Uh, and, and yet, these are really smart UVA students who are probably doing fairly well in my class and in other classes, and yet they seem to be able to multitask. And you may sort of be impressed by this. And you may say, wow. Young people have trained themselves to divide their attention, to manage their time, uh, to, uh, to leverage this, uh, th these, these tools in ways that um, uh, are beyond me because, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm distracted. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, 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 driven a bit mad by this whole process. Um, and I would say that, the, that those assumptions are mistaken for a couple of reasons. One. When we talk about young people and their uh, facility with, uh, with technology, uh, with information technology specifically, we're often paying attention to the elites among young people in America. University students, my university students, UVA students. Of course UVA students can do three or four things at once and still run the world, right? They're UVA students. This should not surprise us. This should not surprise us. But look, these um, students who go to UVA, students who go to Princeton, students who go to Dartmouth, they've already figured out the game, right? And the games in the world. It's not 
challenging for them to deal with this environment uh, as much as it is challenging to people who don't have early exposure to these machines or early exposure to the uh, social aspects of it, to people whose lives are very different and conditions are very different who have not been told from a very young age, if you learn to work these machines uh, in a creative way, you're likely to get that job, right? That's the kind of message that, uh, that um, young people in America who go to the better schools and have wealthier parents and more educated parents get from an early age. You learn to work this and you will succeed. You learn to work this, you will get to this level, often the very level that their parents are at, right? But for the many more young people in America who don't have those messages, who are merely told something a lot more abstract, if you learn to work this machine, you might escape this condition. You learn to, and, but, but not being able to picture that in their daily lives, right? You learn to work this machine and you can escape poverty. And that's, that's not a message that's actually that easy to, to, um, uh, uh, to, to grasp. And the, and the tools aren't as available, right? The, 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 compute, the nearest computer might be in the public library uh, and it may be 10 years old um, uh, and it may not be fully operational and it may not be customizable and it may not be the sort of machine that allows students to really get in. So what I'm saying is we have such a wide array of skills and comforts and levels of comfort among young people in America only, right? And then not even talking about North America, the Western Hemisphere, the world. So to generalize about young people and their technological prowess um, is, is, to create a, is, to, is to commit a mistake because uh, we're often distracted by the more talented, right? And, and, and look, more talented, more prepared, more uh, um, uh, privileged people are always going to seem like they have more going on. And we can't just assume that that represents everybody. But I also want to tell you, having taught at the University of Virginia and at many other elite universities in this country, uh, that in any group of 300 students, there will be 20 or 30 who can uh, sit down and churn out um, in, in high-level computer code their own computer programs that would blow your mind. Right? And there are 20 or 30 in any class of 300 who are pretty frightened by this stuff and can't quite grasp what's going on and can't quite relate to the full changes that we're dealing with here. They're probably on Facebook. They might text out of their phone, but they're not into it. They're just using these tools because that's how you manage your social life or your intellectual life or even your professional life. But, but they're not comfortable with it. They don't have a way of talking about it well. They don't actually understand what's going on. And then, of course, the great middle, you have a huge array of expertise and knowledge. right? And so when I'm teaching a class of 300 students, I don't assume that they all know how computers work. In fact, I assume they don't. And sometimes I bore the top 30 students or so who know far more about computers than I ever will. Uh, but that's just the way it is. And they're used to that. right? Uh, and they will go on to be far richer than I ever will, and good for them. right? So. Um, so, so we have to recognize that even at UVA, there's a tremendous variety of skill levels. The other thing we have to remember is that these devices are not that complicated to use. They're tremendously complicated inside. Look how thin that is. That's beautiful, right? Think of the engineering skill that went into that. That's one way to think of it. Or think how small the elves are who live in there, right? Who are working on this stuff. You know, but. But because, look, the fact that a three-year-old can work this, and my, you know, my six-year-old works it all the time. When I brought it out this morning to load up this presentation, I had to turn off all of the apps she had used yesterday. Um, you know, uh, we have to remember that these things are explicitly designed for a five-year-old or a three-year-old, right? They're supposed to be that easy because they're, the interface is supposed to be far from intimidating. Remember the interfaces of computers 15 years ago? 20 years ago, think before Windows. If you used a personal computer before Windows, you had to go to the command line, right? You had to, if you used, uh, some of you may have used um, a Unix shell or Unix interface to send email around 1992. If you did that, you know that comparing that to this in terms of usability and interface is completely different. And one of the things we do is, you know, those of us who experience computers in those dark ages, 
assume that there is a certain level of training and expertise it takes to do basic things. That is no longer true. The, the, the systems we use now are so user-friendly, so designed to hide the elves, or, or more importantly, so designed to hide the brilliance of the engineering, to hide the complexity of these things, um, that we're not even supposed to think about the wizard behind the curtain. Right? We're not supposed to think about that. We're just supposed to accept that this is a very thin device that allows me to speak in real time to someone in Manila. And it does. What an amazing thing. That's a mind-blowing thing. So one of my jobs when I teach 300 second-year students here at UVA is to remind them that this is really weird. This is really new. And we haven't even begun to figure out the ramifications of that. Right? The fact that we can speak live, in real time, video chat with people in all corners of the world at no marginal cost, pretty significant upfront cost in these machines, but no marginal cost. That's mind-blowing in terms of economics, in terms of culture, in terms, ultimately, I think, in terms of politics. So let's not presume that all young people are tech savvy. And I, I think if you spend enough time with enough young people, you'll see that the variability is tremendous. Myth number two, young people don't care about privacy. Um, uh, I've read article after article uh, uh, along these lines. People have written entire books about how we might as well give up on privacy now because after all, young people clearly don't care about it. Look at all the pictures they're putting up on Facebook that are going to someday cost them a job, right? You know, the thing is that <laughs> there were those pictures like five years ago before every high school in America started inviting people in to give them scary lectures about what not to put on Facebook. I'm happy to report that uh, the young people of America got that message, and they just roll their eyes at you when you tell them not to do this. Now, I say that, uh, so my father's uh, 79 years old. He's a retired professor, which means he lectures like I lecture. Um, I know that I'm annoying my daughter as much as he annoyed me with lectures. So I'm visiting him in, in Miami a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we're driving around, um, and uh, he says, so I noticed that on Facebook you made fun of Texas A&M University. Right? And of course, I made fun of Texas A&M University. I went to the University of Texas, right? And he was worried because, you know, he's a professor, right? So he, like, this is his, he knows, he knows the terms of my profession. He said, but you should never make fun of another university because you need to keep your reputation strong, you know, so that people throughout the, all the universities in the world, uh, you know, respect you. And, and you, you have to understand that everything on Facebook is potentially public. So he starts lecturing me on putting inappropriate things on Facebook. My 79-year-old father, who's never looked at Facebook, but my mother told him about this thing, right? My mother, on the other hand, is up at 3 a.m. tapping away at Facebook and putting all sorts of private things and, you know, putting all sorts of things that make me feel kind of uncomfortable, lots of family news, right? Stuff I'd rather, like, she tells the whole world where I am at any given point, which means long-lost cousins say, why didn't you write to me when I was, you were in that time? You know, stuff like that happens all the time through my mom's Facebook account. So I've got my mom like a fire hose of private information on Facebook. And I've got my father who's never used the thing lecturing me about Facebook privacy. So it's really hard for me to take seriously the notion that young people are in some different condition here, right? And the other thing to remember here is that privacy itself is not an easy word to grasp. It's a word we use to stand in for a lot of different values and activities. So let me distill an idea for you, what I think privacy means. Privacy means the ability to manage one's reputation in a variety of contexts. That's a horrible bumper sticker, right? The ability to manage one's reputation in a variety of contexts. What do I mean by that? As we go through life, even as we go through our day, we go to, through different contexts. Sometimes we are with peers. Sometimes we are with siblings. Sometimes we are with clergy. Sometimes we are with bosses, employers, coworkers. Sometimes we are in public. And in each of these situations, we learn at an early age to manage our public faces, or our faces. They're not even public faces, but to manage our faces. And this is why we have different personas for these different contexts. This is why yesterday, I wasn't dressed like this. I was laid back watching football with my family, right? That's why today I'm dressed like this. I'm in a different context. But think about managing reputation. It's not just about how you present yourself. It's about the words you choose. It's about the things you choose to share. I didn't tell you the specific things that my mother put on Facebook that I wish she hadn't, because I don't think it's appropriate. 
I am exercising privacy. I am managing my reputation in this context, right? And in a different context, I would engage with a different set of information. I would reveal certain things. And this, again, we learn to do at an early age. We quickly learn that there are things you can say to your parents that you can't say to your friends. There are things you can say to your friends that you really shouldn't say to your parents, right? It doesn't take as long to figure that out. But unfortunately, when we talk about privacy, it gets all muddled with images of spatiality, right? Because we're taught also at some point, this is my room, this is my drawer, don't look in my drawer. Whatever you do, don't look in that box in my drawer, right? And it becomes spaces, public and private spaces, right? So the park, the street corner is a public space. The threshold of your door is a private space. And when it comes to law, that matters a lot. When it comes to the Fourth Amendment and, and, and the idea of what the state can do with you, then the notion of spatiality matters a lot, but a lot less than it used to, right? Because now all of the interesting cases for uh, privacy law and surveillance have to do with tracking, tracking through GPS devices, tracking through mobile phones. What is the government allowed to, to do when tracking you? So it's becoming less spatial and more operational. But really, when we're talking about privacy, we need to back off of the spatial idea. Because think about what it's like to be a child in America now and to understand that the private space, like as an adult, my home is my private space. You cross the threshold, you're in my private space. The government can't come through here. You better have a warrant if you're going to come through here, right? That's the, uh, that's the grown-up way, once you understand your rights as an American, of thinking about privacy, but your home is sacrosanct, right? Ever since the American Revolution, your home is sacrosanct. To a child in America, that's not the case. Your home is not a spot of privacy, right? It's not a site of privacy. It is a site of surveillance. In your home, as a young person in America, you are constantly being watched. Your drawers are constantly being shuffled through. Your web history is constantly being checked. There's no privacy spatially in the home, but there is privacy in one's mind, in one's thoughts, in one's live journal, you know, another platform for, uh, for connecting, sharing, and, and limiting. Uh, on Facebook, one of the reasons it is so interesting and so useful is that if you learn to manage the privacy settings, you can govern who gets to see what posts? You can make sure that this post only goes to family members. This post only goes to a very small group. You can actually do this better on Google's new social network, um, Google Plus. It's, it's very precise in how you can develop these contexts. So this notion of privacy in context, the privacy is about managing your reputation in various contexts, understanding the consequences of sharing too much in certain contexts. That's what's really important here. Facebook is trouble in terms of privacy because it blows away these contexts. For most people who use Facebook, for most of the time Facebook has been operational, all of these contexts have been jumbled up. So we have coworkers and peers and, and coaches and, and friends and distant cousins and people we barely know in our group of friends. And that's chaos. And that makes it almost impossible to manage your social relations. And so if you have an embarrassing picture of yourself drunk at a party and you haven't restricted it just to the friends who were at that party and you haven't asked them to restrict it, then you could find yourself having that piece of information ripped out of context and ultimately threatening your reputation in another context and thus your job, as has happened a number of times to people. But here's the thing. Facebook doesn't want you to restrict the sharing of this information. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, has explicitly said, we don't think that people should have different personae. We don't think people should manage their information in different contexts. Everybody should be open to everybody about everything. He's very young. He's very, he's very, he's a, he went to Harvard. What do they know, right? Come on. So he, look, and he dropped out of Harvard too. Come on. So, you know, basically Zuckerberg doesn't understand human beings. He doesn't understand the needs of human beings, right? He understands his very discreet world and how it works, but that doesn't work for the rest of us. This is what causes so much tension with Facebook. So it's not that young people don't care about privacy. In fact, social science investigators uh, such as Dana Boyd at Microsoft Research, Esther Hargitay at Northwestern University have done intensive surveys and studies and found that young people in America are actually much more aware of these problems, much more aware of how privacy actually works, 
much more aware of the privacy settings that are available on services like Google and Facebook, and much more likely to set them than older people are. The older you are, the less likely you are to dig through and set your privacy settings to protect yourself. The more you're putting yourself at Facebook's, uh, 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 where you're letting yourself get victimized by Facebook, really. Um, the younger you are in America, actually, the better you are. So in fact, it's just the opposite. Young people care more about privacy than older people do. Myth number three, that the digital generation is somehow different, right? There is no such thing as a digital generation. That's actually the title of this talk. And, and really, what I want you to take away from this is the notion that even if you remember a different set of media interactions, even if you reminisce about them fondly, you still face the same challenges and opportunities with the current setup as anybody. And we're all in a very temporary moment, right? This device will seem laughable in five years. People will say, can you, oh, what did I do? See, it's so laughable. It's so laughable that I messed it up. This device will, uh, will seem archaic in some way. Who knows what, you know, maybe it'll be too thick. Maybe it'll be too cumbersome. Maybe it'll be too slow. It's already trouble. Here, actually, I'm going to just unplug it and see what we do here. There we go. Yay, good. All right. So I think thinking about different generations in terms of media forms or technology is unhelpful. It's unhelpful. I think it hides more than it reveals. And the reason is twofold. One, when talking about digital generations, again, we ignore the diversity. We assume that everybody of a certain age group shares an experience, shares access, shares opportunities. We ignore economic diversity, ethnic diversity, global diversity, national diversity. We ignore value diversity, right? Uh, we ignore religious diversity, all those sorts of things when we gather people into generations, which is why my point number four is, I hate the very idea of generations, and I wish we would discard it. I think it doesn't make sense sociologically. It doesn't make sense historically. Um, it, 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 it's circular, right? What happens when people talk about generations, when people do um, marketing studies, and the studies about generations are almost all about marketing. They're not about social science. Um, what they do, what people do is, they arbitrarily define a generation by some years, right? The years are some, right? So, the baby boom, uh, we often read, uh, lasted from 1946 to 1964. There are actually demographic reasons for that because that's when the slope of birth rates increased and decreased. Uh, and, and so you can say there actually was a, a baby boom. There were a lot of babies born there. But that's a long period of time. And to assume that people born in 1946 share anything with people born in 1964, go on, ask, right? No, did not happen. You were born in 1964, you did not have to worry about being drafted for Vietnam, right? If you were born in 1946, you might not have had to worry about that either because your life might have been in a different place. But you were born in 1956, oh boy, you did, right? These are important things to remember, that the diversity even of that phenomenon, the baby boom was a demographic event, but not a generational event because there is no shared experience. Think about two people born the same year in the United States in 1956, who reach uh, that, that very sensitive, dangerous age in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when they might actually have to face a question of how the Vietnam War affects them and their families, right? One is really wealthy, one is very poor. They're not gonna experience the Vietnam War the same way. One is Asian American, one is not. They're not gonna experience the Vietnam War the same way. One is a man, one is a woman. They're not going to experience the Vietnam War the same way, right? One is deeply religious, one is atheistic. They're not going to ex experience the Vietnam War the same way. To assume that they're even a historical event can have a singular effect on a group of people born on the same day is absurd. It ignores the diversity of the human experience, right? To come up with these artificial categories and boundaries saying, 
people on this side of this line are in one generation and this side of this line are in another generation is absurd because people are born every minute, right? There's, it's a continuum. It's a continuum, right? So, so uh, to talk in my field, I hear way too much about millennials. I have no idea what these people are, right? It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me, again, because it ignores the tremendous diversity of the experience of the people who sit in front of me in class. And I've been doing this for more than 12 years, right? And in that 12 year, over that 12 year period of time, I've seen a lot of the same problems show up in people's lives of the students who sit in front of me and come talk to me. And I've seen a lot of the same opportunities and a lot of the same levels of excellence. But I've also seen things change. So things change and things stay the same, but they can't be bracketed off in terms of generation. And this drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. Whenever I read about generations, I just hit the, hit the roof in anger because it just makes no sense to me. Um, so here's one of the takeaways. We're all just babies when it comes to digital technology. This is all new to all of us. Some of us are more into it. Some of us are more adept. Some of us can put it in historical perspective because we once typed things into a command line, right, or flipped an LP record. But we're all just babies. We have just now started trying to figure out what this new level of connectivity means to our sense of, our, of citizenship, a sense of global membership in the human family, uh, our sense of obligation to each other. We're not even close to figuring out how not to be rude online, right? Basic things like, like manners, we're having to relearn. Uh, social norms are having to, or we're having to re-engineer. So we're all in this together. Again, thinking about different generations, thinking about these young people today uh, and how they have it differently or how weird they are or how talented they are doesn't help us with the fact that when it comes to challenges about privacy, my father and my mother and my daughter are all in the same boat and the same true for everyone in this room. We all have to face the fact that these systems are designed to use us in certain ways and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. We just have to make sure that we use them back appropriately. Right? That we understand the terms of the transaction. And what we don't have is clarity and transparency about these systems. We don't fully understand them. In fact, in some cases, we're not allowed to understand them. And that, I think, is the big problem. So instead of talking about our differences when it comes to these digital media, I think we should be talking about how we all face certain challenges. There are certain policies we might want to change to protect people. There are, certain, um, there are certain technologies we might want to adapt faster than others. There are some technologies we might want to avoid. Again, we. Digital communication technologies are not neutral. You can't just imagine that people are going to use these technologies as they wish. They're designed with certain values embedded in them. They're designed to do certain things. Now, we, we the users, have a, certain abilities within the range of how they're designed, right? But they are designed to encourage us to do certain things. So Facebook is designed to get you going back to Facebook. Facebook is designed to get you to click like, 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 like as much as possible. We still have free will. We don't have to. But Facebook is designed to encourage you to do that. It is biased in that direction, biased in the direction of revelation, uh, uh, biased in the direction of, um, of, of sharing. Uh, the defaults are set to share everything as widely as possible. Now, we have the ability to go in and adjust those defaults, but we don't always. But digital technologies are not determinative, right? We have the ability to resist. We have the ability to customize. We have the ability to fight back as citizens and as consumers if we don't like how things are going. We don't have to just let technology happen, right? We actually have some autonomy over our technological worlds. And you're saying to me, I was at Best Buy yesterday and I had no autonomy, I had no control, I had to buy that game system, right? Um, but in fact, we do. And, and I, one of the things I would love for people to take away from all of my lectures and all my classes is the fact that, that we can decide what we want to embed in our lives. We can do so in a knowledgeable way if we make sure 
that we take the time to study how this stuff works and we take the time to understand where we're going with it, what the real consequences are. So let me conclude by saying that my book is for sale outside. Um, but, uh, but more than that, we are not new animals, new beings in this world of digital technology. We are the same old human beings. And what a lot of these technologies have allowed us to do is amplify some of our behaviors, satisfy some needs we've had for a long time, and get better at certain things. These technologies make just about everything easier. But they don't create new desires, new needs for us. We are the same human beings we've always been. We're just better at some things now than we used to be because we have these devices and technologies in our lives. That means there are going to be problems and challenges that we can't foresee, right? There are going to be costs that we can't foresee. And there are going to be tremendous advantages and changes that we can't foresee. So don't trust anyone who tells you how things will be. Don't trust anyone who says, because technology moves in this way, we will be here by this date. Or because technology does this, we will be completely different human beings and different animals in 20 years. That person does not know what he or she is talking about. You can take my word for that. Thank you very much. I'd love to take some questions now. Hey, Sean. Hey, Siva. So I was on your mom's Facebook page. <laughs> yes. I'm kidding. Uh, I, I have two questions for you. Uh, actually, they're probably statements, and I'm looking for a response. Um, one is I, I don't disagree with your thesis in general, but... Um, I have noticed, I, I, have, I have children, as you do, a little older, and it has occurred to me that you know, when I got into Facebook a few years ago, I did the usual reconnecting with people I knew in high school, sure. making, forging new friendships, and I realized that my kids now, with social media, with you know, their smartphones at their fingertips, they can, they can uh, potentially always stay connected to people. Whereas I have, you know, found myself reconnecting to people that I lost track of 10, 15, 20 more years ago. They're surrounded, they're surrounded now by a group of friends right. that unless the technology changes or unless there's a social change, they could literally always stay in touch with, you know, and kind of carry with them. So experientially, I think the way they, they experience the, the, the world, the, the globe, they're, they're truly global citizens in a way that, you know, I, I won't be... Um, you know, e even now, I don't have that same you know, sense of uh, you know, just always, ha uh, always having those same friends. You know, they're, they're people I communicate with now and sort of catch up with, but they're not part of my daily life. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious how you see this, this technology affecting this, sure, this, sure. this generation. Well, I, Knowing that sure. we're not, I'm not asking you to predict what's going to happen in 20 years. Yeah. And my, my second question only kind of slightly related is your thoughts on this CIA unit that's been tasked with reading social media, with reading right. Google, with reading Twitter, with trying, to, with trying to read trends around the world and predict you know, what's going to happen yeah. okay. tomorrow. Uh, I, I heard a report, you may have heard the same report I did a few days ago on NPR, where they're allowed to look at foreign Twitter feeds and foreign Facebooks, but if they accidentally read an American citizen's Facebook page, right. they have to like, delete those records. So, wow, two big questions. I would say you don't know how your children are going to manage their collection of friends looking forward. Nobody does. We don't know what methods we will use to slough off the people we're not interested in. Um, they have the ability to get rid of those people from Facebook, and they may choose to. They have the ability to ignore them, and they may choose to. What's different, and this is different for all of us, is that Facebook actually uh, manages who they stay in contact with more than they may recognize, right? Facebook actually chooses which of your friends will appear in your newsfeed more than others. Um, and they don't tell you why or why certain friends show up more often than others. So, uh, but that's a problem you and your children share going forward. You're talking about the fact that you entered this uh, arrangement um, and had to catch up in terms of connecting people with people long ago. And, the levels of connection will be weak or strong or in between. And that's the same going forward with their friends. 
uh, they're going to have some friends from high school they're going to just not have anything to say to for 10 years. They'll still be in their Facebook feed if Facebook's in business uh, in five years, which there's no guarantee of. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to have the same uh, uh, or, a, or a different experience than you. Um, but ultimately, I think your experience and your children's experience will converge uh, largely because um, you're, you're going to manage your social life through these systems more than you have, and, and they will continue to. So I don't think it's a I don't th but the other thing to remember, though, is that, again, uh, your situation and your children's situation is fairly special in the whole world, right? Most children in the world don't have smartphones. Hmm. Most children in the world don't have always-on connections, right? So that's important to remember, too. The second thing about the level of government surveillance, um, so in general, uh, thanks to laws passed in the 1970s, uh, the federal government agencies of the federal government are not supposed to monitor the communications of US citizens or even actually people in the United States uh, without authorization. Uh, it used to be through the FISA court, um, but we basically ignored that provision, um, uh, or at least the Bush administration ignored that provision, and then retroactively Congress altered the, st the standards for that. Uh, but th for the most part, uh, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, um, still respect the general contours of that distinction, although not exclusively. Uh, but just like with phone communication, um, there are no such restrictions on, uh, foreign, on monitoring foreign subjects and their communication. Um, and listen, that, that sounds completely fine from the interest of the United States. Right? We are protected as citizens or residents from the intrusion of the government without due process, but people beyond the United States who might want to harm us, of course, are are not protected, and that sounds reasonable. But remember that there are foreign governments who can spy on you with that same level of, uh, of, uh, of freedom um, as the US government has to spy on people in England, Germany, and Egypt. So uh, it's a, that is a whole new subject. But the notion of data mining, that these rich troves of information can yield actionable intelligence, is very gestational. Right? They've been building these databases of signals from social media for about five years now. It's going to take years for them to be at the point where they can actually tease out useful information through the noise. There's a lot of noise in there. There are a lot of people you know, using phrases that might sound like one thing that actually mean another thing. And, and so um, you know, I'm, I, I'm concerned about that, but I'm not sure that, um, that in the short term, uh, the security services in this country are going to find that trove of information that useful ultimately. Look, really bad people who want to do bad things in the world don't plan it on Facebook, right? They don't plan it on Twitter. They have their ways. And their ways are usually pretty protected from snooping. Um, and, and we actually are very lucky that our, uh, our intelligence services, our security services, are as good as they are at cracking those discrete levels of communication. Um, but, you know, it's, there's a whole lot more going on there that we should talk about some other time, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi. Yeah. Ah, good, good question. The question was, why would anyone put any embarrassing photograph on Facebook? And the answer is, that things are embarrassing in some contexts and not in others. And things are embarrassing to you later that are not embarrassing to you today. I mean, think of the poetry we all wrote when we were 14 that we didn't know was so embarrassing, right? We didn't know it at 14 that it was embarrassing. So, but the other thing is that, again, like there are pictures or, or accounts of our lives that in a particular context among the right people can just be funny, Charming, cute. Uh, you know, I remember the time that my sister threw up all over the back seat. Uh, that was so cute, right? Uh, well, actually, in this context, that's not cute, right? You could, when I tell you that she was four, it might be cute, right? So, so it's, it really is, again, about context. Why would someone put something on Facebook that's potentially embarrassing? Because at that moment in that context, they, that person might not be imagining that that will be taken out of context. And in the early days of Facebook, when no one's parents were on it, and there was a sense of comfort and control 
um, and, and the context was clearer, a lot of people put a lot of things that they wouldn't necessarily want to share. So when I was on Facebook early on, when, uh, uh, before it was open, and I was a, a faculty member at New York University, um, a lot of my students wanted to friend me. And we basically, faculty who were on Facebook, you know, shared a, a rule that we would not be friends with our students for this very reason, because our students were putting photographs of parties and accounts of parties on their, on their profiles. And we didn't want to know that, right? I don't want to actually know what my students do um, in that way. I just don't, it's not the sort of thing I want in my mind as I'm dealing with a, 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 a you know, a, a, a person I want to view a, a, a along a certain defined relationship of mutual respect, right? Um, but the other thing is some of the students were not um, careful about limiting who got to see their materials um, and it, stuff would show up in searches. It was, you know, there, there were all sorts of problems. Those problems are, I think, less frequent now. There's a better awareness of the potential hazards uh, and Facebook does give people a bit more control now than it used to. But the, the answer to that question, why people do it, is um, uh, that they perhaps have not calibrated that, that things are not embarrassing here but might be embarrassing there. Yes, sir. You, you alluded to the, is this on? You alluded to the uh, change from sort of a physical privacy to perhaps might, might be called a, a virtual privacy. Sure, sure. And uh, you also stated that you thought the, you know, that your research had shown that younger people were actually more interested in privacy than perhaps, or more conscious of it sure, sure. than older people. So how do you see this playing out in legislation? As, oh, as yeah. our founding fathers saw, right, saw a need to, to legislate private pri privacy, yeah. um, how, how do you see this playing out uh, in, 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 because the legislators are going to get involved in this? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So look, our, our earliest privacy policies are expressed in the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. right? So the Fourth Amendment protects the threshold of our house. It protects our property from illegal search and seizure without due process. And this, of course, comes out of some very bad experiences with British soldiers, right? The fact that British soldiers were put into our houses and, and, and you know, there was no protection from uh, search and seizure uh, before the Revolutionary War. And so this was a very specific uh, intervention that, that um, many of the founders felt was necessary. Not all of them, certainly. This was not a, uh, a universally held uh, value. Um, but that was the first, that was sort of the, the genesis of American privacy, uh, a part of the Bill of Rights, something that clearly restricted the federal government from doing things that the British soldiers had done. It did not restrict, by the way, of course, what the states did. Uh, that didn't happen. The, the, the Bill of Rights was not incorporated in the states until well into the 20th century. Uh, but this, and of course, the Fifth Amendment, which protects your thoughts, right? It protects you from having to testify against yourself. It means what's in my mind can stay in my mind and you can't coerce or threaten it out of me. Um, and that, that's just as important. So the Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment work together to give us a sense of protection from the powers of the state. Again, the federal government. Uh, it stayed pretty much there. Privacy violations became a matter of civil law uh, about 120 years later uh, as people started finding reason to file suit against Snoopy reporters uh, and photographers uh, who were, you know, climbing through bushes to take pictures of weddings and so forth, uh, and and so you start to get this other area of, of privacy started, but that wasn't really legislative; it was through the courts. Um, then we get not much happening in the privacy area until the 1970s, in the wake of revelations of governmental institutions snooping on Americans, right? The fact that the IRS and the CIA and the FBI were sharing information about uh, people who were considered uh, subversives uh, in the 1960s and 70s. That revelation, those revelations that came out in the Church Committee reports in 1975 uh, and 1974, uh, the, a lot of revelations that came out of Watergate um, made a lot of Americans concerned about the power of the federal government. And this happened at the same time that people were growing concerned about the power of database companies. And, and the, what was then a very early credit card industry and credit reporting agent industry. And so we see a flurry of legislation between 1974 and 1976 to protect people from uh, having government, government agencies share information. 
It's one of the reasons that the FBI can't know what the IRS knows about you, because there's a law forbidding that. Um, again, without due process. They can, get, they can ultimately, there are ways around it, but you know, judges have to sign off on it. Uh, but it's also why the credit system actually protects you, I know it sounds crazy, protects you better than most big systems do. In the credit system, you actually have rights. You can appeal to remove things that you think are you know, improper information. Uh, you can limit who gets to see your credit report. That's all because we passed laws around 1974 limiting what credit reporting agencies could do and giving us certain, uh, certain abilities to get, uh, get and restrict information about ourselves. That's one of the most important privacy laws we ever had. So there was that flurry between 1974 and 1976 uh, that was really important in reestablishing our relationship with the federal government and with big database companies. But so much of it was in a world of direct mail, in a world of credit reporting agencies that worked at the speed of the US mail. Um, and no one foresaw this, this tremendous level of data valence, where every time you go into Harris Teeter and you, and you run your discount card, Harris Teeter adds all your new purchases to the database about you so it can profile you. And it doesn't just do that to send you the right coupons. Make sure that you know, if you start buying diapers, they know for the next 36 months they can sell you diapers. It's, it has more to do with the fact that they can then take that information and sell it to a marketing database company that can then resell it to other companies to help get, uh, uh, market goods to you. Right? And there's a tremendous amount of information out there on you through those dossiers. Uh, again, there's very little legislative restriction on what happens with that information. The problem is that the government can often get that information just by writing a check. They don't have to get a warrant to get that information. And they're using that to build up profiles as well. So you've had, we've had people snared with false positives, like being accused of uh, trafficking in dangerous things, largely because they've misread these consumer databases. Doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen occasionally. But in terms of privacy legislation now, uh, there is a big move, and there are a lot of people in Congress from both parties who are concerned about the fact that we often don't have the ability to, to cleanly opt out of these relationships or even cleanly understand them. And so there have been hearings and bills filed to make the privacy policies more readable, less legalese, along the same lines as the new credit card reforms are, are meant to give everyday people an ability to understand what credit card companies are really doing with, your, with, with you and your interest rates and so forth, that disclosure rule, clean language, you know, clear language rules. Uh, so there are efforts to do that so that whenever you sign on to a new service, you don't get 100 pages of small type and then you click, yes, I agree, right? That you actually might have to get a, a little presentation on what they're going to do with your data. Because most people don't know what Facebook does with our data. Most people don't know what Google does. Um, you can dig down and find it and read a lot if you want to, um, but it's hard to figure out. So there are, there are efforts to do that. But so far, nothing has gone forward, largely because the companies that are invested in the status quo are extremely powerful. And they don't want this legislation going through. So that's the cynical reason that consumer protection legislation has not gone through. There's actually, there are legitimate reasons. And one of those legitimate reasons is that um, uh, there's a strong thought that a, uh, uh, over, uh, overextending consumer privacy legislation, especially in the medical area, will limit the value of, of medical databases and electronic medical records that can hopefully be used to figure out better treatments. So there's a lot of discussion about that. One more question. Hey, thanks for the talk. Sure. <laughs> it was especially hilarious to hear you describe your parents. They're almost identical to mine okay. with their whole behavior right. with all this. Um, there's was, probably Facebook friends. Yeah. So how, it, exactly. Uh, now with, with talking to people like your dad, um, how do you advise people, first of all, on what to post, what not to post publicly? What, what are your rules for yourselves? Oh, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm also on the faculty, so I'm always yeah. uh, keeping my page really clean. Um, well, and, so, and, so, and, right. and, and more, more importantly, also afterwards, your prediction for this afternoon. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Great, great, great. So I'm in a, I'm in a weird position with both Facebook and Twitter. It's, it's what I do for a living in a lot of ways, right? So I don't really have the option. I mean, I've been very mad at Facebook over the years, and I've written a lot of things about how I dislike their policies and activities. And people keep saying, well, what are you complaining about? Why don't you just quit? And I can't, because it's my job. My job is to stand up and tell people about Facebook. And if I quit, I couldn't tell them what Facebook's doing, right? But I also, um, 
I sell books and I give public speak, speak, speeches and I'm, I, I, uh, I, I have to promote myself and both Facebook and Twitter are really powerful for that. So just this morning I put on both Facebook and Twitter that I was doing this talk in hopes that a few people who follow me would show up to this. Um, and so um, my own way of dealing with it is much more professional than I think most people, than definitely, than, definitely than most people. So um, again, I still don't friend my students. I don't let them friend me. I warn them I, I, after graduation, they can be my friends on Facebook. Uh, uh, but they're welcome to follow me on Twitter. A lot of the same stuff shows up there. Um, when I write about family things, I only write funny, cute things that my daughter did um, because it's kind of charming and fun. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, I recently had a, a, a two deaths in the family. I didn't post anything about those people on, on my Facebook page um, uh, because I just, I, it, it didn't register the correct way to me. I, I don't think of Facebook as a solemn place where, where my serious feelings belong. That's just me, though. Um, a lot of people use Facebook to mourn. A lot of people use Facebook to express really deep, powerful, important things in their lives. And I totally respect that. And, they, and a lot of people need that. Um, uh, but I don't. I, 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 I would feel awkward doing that. And so I, I, I chose not to. I didn't even think about doing it, actually. Um, uh, and um, uh, so, you know, I have, I have my own rules. I think it's really important for everybody to have his or her own rules, his or her own rules about, uh, about what is appropriate in what contexts. Um, and also recognize that people use it for different things. Um, so whereas my mom uses it almost entirely to broadcast news to the family, um, I use it almost entirely to uh, tell jokes about Texas A&M. Uh, and, and, uh, but, but I, so yeah, I mean, I have a lot of stuff up there that is sort of expressing my political opinions, a lot of stuff up there about sports, a lot of stuff up there about music. It's kind of like a TV show from my mind, you know? Um, but it's that shallow. It's just a TV show about my mind. You know, and if I, you know, if I write something in a newspaper article or something, I'll, I'll post that article up there, again, publicizing myself. But that's not how most people use it, and I don't pretend that it is. Um, uh, now, I think we're going to win today. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I say that um, because, and I've studied college football almost as much as I've studied um, electronic media. Uh, and uh, I think that we have, for the first time in my memory, um, the level of, of discipline and focus uh, that, uh, that can um, actually manage to upset a much more talented uh, team, which they are. Virginia Tech is a much more talented team. But they don't have the focus, discipline, and spirit that this particular team has. And I sure hope it lasts past this year, but I'm really impressed. Uh, with, uh, with the UVA football program in the past two years. So um, uh, I hope we can uh, all celebrate together soon enough. Thank you.